Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Kath. Yes? Do you remember all of the fear around Y2K and how (laughs) everyone was like, the world is going to end? Yeah. Going into the year 2000, there was a fear that computers couldn't handle the turn of the century and they just all go haywire. Yeah, nuclear power plants would melt down, planes would fall from the sky, the banking system would fall apart. It was going to be like an apocalypse, kind of. End of times. How do you think you would handle the end of times? Um, I have a very strong position on this Mm -hmm. in that I would like to be amongst the first wave to just give in to the apocalypse. You're not going to try and repopulate humanity. You're just like, I'm out. That is so much work. I also would want to go pretty early. But before that, I think I'm just going to go to McDonald's and fry up everything they have and just have so many chicken nuggets. Before I die. Yeah, last meal. Was the last meal's McDonald's? <laughs> sad. That's very sad. sad. From WNYC Studios, you're listening to Nancy. With your hosts, Tobin Lowe and Kathy Tu. Okay, so all those things that people were afraid of would happen on Y2K, they didn't happen. No nuclear meltdowns, no stock market crash. Right. But the new millennium did usher in some big changes. For a lot of people, there was a feeling in the air that it was time for a fresh start. People like Dan Taberski. He hosts the podcast Surviving Y2K. At the end of 1999, Dan was a producer on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, and he was married to a woman— But Dan was starting to realize he was gay. Right after New Year's in 2000, he came out to his wife and his marriage ended. Surviving Y2K follows Dan's story and the stories of other people whose lives were actually affected by Y2K. For Masha Gessen, big deal journalist and author, what happened on December 31st, 1999 would change the course of her life. Here's Dan Taberski to tell her story. In 1999, Masha Gessen is a journalist in Russia asking the big questions, like would capitalism work in Russia after the Cold War? Could they even do democracy? Could they make it stick? All great questions that Masha doesn't really care about right now. Because right now, a couple days before New Year's, she wants the answer to a different question. Could she make someone fall in love with her? So I was like madly in love and this woman was in Berlin and I was in Vienna and like pining for her and she was this very cool woman. She was just, she was just very cool and I was very much in love. And so she had a plan to try and seal the deal. She was in Berlin and I was going to like kidnap her or lure her to Moscow with me. And it was going to be like a turning point in our relationship. She was going to go back to Moscow with me for New Year's and never leave. So this is your plan. This was my plan. I'm already rooting for you. Thank you. I left Vienna. I picked her up in um, Bratislava. And we drove to Moscow through the snow. As it turns out, epic snow on the week-long road to Russia. Every place we tried to stop, every hotel was closed because it was Christmas. Am I the only one imagining them both in giant fur hats? And so we had to keep driving through the snow. And she didn't drive, so I was driving. Oh, my my windshield wipers stopped working. (laughs) So I had to ask her to hang out the window and keep keep cleaning the snow (laughs) off of my windshield. 
By the time we got to Moscow, my car finally choked on all the gasoline that we'd been filling up with in Ukraine. Like, we had to push it the last couple of hundred meters. Oh, my gosh. Um, but I was also I was just so happy to get to Moscow. Now, Masha had picked New Year's to pull off her lady heist for a reason. So, first of all, New Year's is the biggest holiday of the year. Their New Year's is like our Christmas, but without God. The Bolsheviks had nixed God at the revolution. So Russians put up a New Year's tree. What do they call the tree? Does it, does it's it have a it's name? called a New Year's tree. It's a, in, it's in a New Year's fir tree. It's a Novogodnya Yolka. Thank you. You put presents under it. It's a big family holiday. You generally gather you know, your clan around you. So uh, it really is Christmas. It is. Well, it's, except it's New Year's. Right. Uh, <laughs> presents and black caviar and good cheer and the whole festive day always culminating in the same thing. So people usually gather on New Year's Eve, sit down at the table, and then they watch the president's address just before midnight. This is Boris Yeltsin giving the speech the year before in front of Red Square. It happens every year and everyone watches. And the speech, it had to be perfectly timed. So the president has to finish in time for the clock to strike midnight. From the bells in the Tower of the Kremlin. And this year, this was the big one. I mean, it's so symbolic if you think about it, you know, the millennium and this country that has never had a peaceful transfer of power before. There were supposed to be elections coming in June. Yeltsin's term limit was up. But lately, he had been making a lot of people really nervous. He was acting unpredictably. He was getting drunk in public, like severely soused. He tried to conduct an orchestra in Berlin during an official visit because he was drunk and happy, having to be propped up by his bodyguards because he's so drunk he can barely walk. Masha arrives in Moscow on the 30th. And whatever happens with the speech, she will be watching, listening to the clock strike midnight at a party with her friends, and her new love, who will hopefully be so dazzled by the trip and the gesture and Masha that she'll decide to stay in Moscow with her forever and never leave. But there are two schemes afoot in Moscow tonight. And this is where the second one comes in. So we went to sleep. They oversleep, actually, and are awoken on the 31st by a gobsmacker of a surprise. And my phone rang, would have been a landline, rang probably, I don't know, uh, one o'clock in the afternoon. And it was one of the people with whom we were supposed to celebrate New Year's that night. And she called and said, so is the party canceled? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, because Yeltsin resigned. And I said something to the effect of that being the stupidest prank ever. <laughs> right, it's not even funny. <laughs> yeah, like, like, why would you make up a thing like that? But it wasn't a prank. It was real. Russians were just making last-minute preparations for their biggest holiday of the year when President Yeltsin made his stunning announcement. Out of nowhere, Yeltsin pops up on TV in the afternoon, almost 12 hours before he was supposed to, and says, Yeltsin, out. He decided to resign, that he was tired. He said, I was naive. I thought that we could resolve the legacy of totalitarianism in a single stroke. And then, in the very same breath, does something kind of totally totalitarian. And then he said, 
that there was a new man, a young man, that Russians were placing their hopes in, and he didn't want to stand in his way. Yeltsin practically just points at someone and says, this guy, he's president now, and you're really going to like him. So as a journalist, my reaction was, shit, it's New Year's Eve, he's just resigned, and I don't understand what's going on. And Masha, who was so worried about whether or not her own plan had worked, she would have to switch gears to figure out this one. And this one, too, would end up changing her life forever. Because the guy Yeltsin pointed to is Vladimir Putin. So we're going to go straight to Moscow as our first port of call. And what's been going on? Boris Yeltsin stole the headline right out of the old and new millennium in a taped address to the country. He said he had signed papers transferring power to his chosen successor, Vladimir Putin. 11.56, Moscow time. Four minutes till midnight. Masha Gessen is watching TV, where Yeltsin is supposed to give the traditional New Year's Eve speech. And then this little bureaucrat goes on television. Vladimir Putin appears to give the speech instead. He's at a big wooden desk in the Kremlin, in front of a Charlie Brown Christmas tree with decorations that for sure just came out of a cardboard box in someone's attic. He looks uncomfortable, like he's got to go to the bathroom, like he's going to get up and bolt. And speaks this totally bureaucratic language, completely depersonalized. I think everybody was a little shell-shocked. But it didn't take long for Masha to figure out how Yeltsin's plan to pick his own replacement went down. Yeltsin's legal term limit had been approaching, and he was weak, not just physically, politically. So he was afraid that if the opposition came to power, he was going to be prosecuted. For things like illegally dissolving parliament in 1993, and then shelling parliament, his own parliament, with artillery when they refused to disband. And people died. So I mean, there's stuff mm. to prosecute him for. So he was looking for somebody who would guarantee him immunity from prosecution. And that's how he stumbled upon Putin. And then a couple of weeks before New Year's, they hatched this plan for Yeltsin to resign early so that there would be an early election for which no one would have time to re- prepare. And Putin would basically be a shoo-in. Because if a president resigns, new elections have to happen in 90 days instead of in June, like they were supposed to. Putin launched his campaign on December 31st, and nobody else was going to be able to launch theirs until mid-January. And Putin gets to give the kickoff speech of all kickoff speeches, ushering Russia into the third millennium. And leaving zero doubt that he is in control now. And then he goes into this quick sort of speech saying, you know, it's all legal, you're going to be protected. And it's a real sort of us-against-the-world kind of posture where Yeltsin said, we did what we could. And Putin is like, we have a fortress. We have an army. We've dug the trenches. And the Russian people buy it. They're in. The tough guy talk of strength and stability, it resonates. But not for Masha. I just really wanted people to understand what a threat he was in the present. Did you understand then how much your future in Russia would change based on what had happened that day? I I don't think I understood it fully. But, you know, that said, I didn't think I was going to have to, like, leave the country. 
I didn't think that 12 years later he was going to make uh, homophobia the cornerstone of his politics. I mean, that was like the last thing on my mind. But that's the future. Still just a feeling she has as she watches the speech on TV at her New Year's party with the woman she loves. And sure, it's cold outside, but it's warm in here, and the vodka makes it more so. The lights on the New Year's tree and old Anxine and all that good stuff. How was the party that night? I remember I was so happy. I was like so madly in love. That was that was the biggest thing. Which probably brings you to your question about what happened with my project of kidnapping them. <laughs> Remember, this all started when Masha stole her love interest from Berlin and drove her to Moscow for New Year's, hoping the gesture would be an irresistible beginning to a romance. So it worked out. It did. It did. She stayed in Moscow with me. and uh, Oh, wonderful. By October 2001, we had two kids. Oh my gosh. You weren't screwing around. They're very large people now. And as they watch Putin finish his speech that night, he times it perfectly. As the bells in the Kremlin announce the new millennium in an even newer Russia. December 31st, 1999, Masha senses big changes are coming to Russia, but she didn't know just how close to home they would hit. We asked Masha to come into the studio to talk to us about it. That's coming up after the break. And we're back. All right, so New Year. 2000, Masha Gessen is starting a new family with a woman in Russia. Masha's had a really complicated relationship with Russia. She was born there, and she immigrated to the U.S. with her parents when she was 14. Her parents thought they'd be safer from anti-Semitism in the U.S. But when the Soviet Union collapsed, Masha moved back to Russia in 1991 to cover the country at a time of immense change. Today, Russia is known for being incredibly anti-gay. But in those first years after Putin took over, being a lesbian couple wasn't something Masha and her partner had to hide. In my case, it would have been very difficult to hide anything. I mean, like, uh, the first time I went back to Russia in 1991, the largest newspaper in the country printed on its front page an article about lesbians coming to this feminist conference, <laughs> which is how I came out to my extended family. Oh, my uh, God. And, um, so I've, like, never been not wildly publicly out in Russia. But in a way, it was very uneventful. Mm. Um, I mean, it was well before the anti-gay campaign began. So it was, like, a dozen years before. And so queer people were just not part of um, public consciousness. At what point then did you start to feel the turn that maybe things were changing? Twenty. 11, I guess, I was the editor of a very large, glossy magazine, and rather prominent Russians claimed that I and my team engaged in homosexual propaganda hmm. and forced upon them you know, foreign Western values. And I didn't feel at all oppressed by this. I just thought it was weird. 
It felt non-threatening. It felt non-threatening, and it felt like otherworldly and very bizarre. Mm-hmm. Um, which you know, which only just tells you what an idiot I was, because um, because then, like about a year later, it's so clearly flipped because laws against so-called homosexual propaganda were passed first in St. Petersburg, the second largest city, and then on the federal level. Is that when you started thinking that this was not a joke, like this is happening? Yes. Yeah, I had like um, like sort of a moment of instant conversion and freak out oh, uh, from thinking that it was ridiculous to thinking that this was really scary. Hmm. In these laws, when they refer to homosexual propaganda, gay propaganda, to them, what constitutes gay propaganda? Well, so those kinds of laws, and that's a great question, because those kinds of laws are always created for random enforcement. Hmm. So you can't actually tell what it is. But this is a law that actually enshrined second-class citizenship. Do you have a sense of why the law started popping up around 2011, 2012? Like, what was it that changed that suddenly that was a thing? So 2011, 2012 was when the protest movement, the anti-Putin protest movement, took hold. There were mass protests all over the country as Putin was coming back in as president after taking a sort of break. I think that Putin was really scared of the protests, and the goal was to paint the protesters as other. Mm. And an anti-queer campaign was very handy for that because it was queer-baiting the protesters and basically calling them queer, immediately position them as other, as imported from the West, as enemies— and is also signifying everything that had changed since the Soviet Union collapse. So if you wanted to go back to an imaginary past and not be faced by all the anxiety that the present and the protests caused you, then you had to fight against queer people. Mm-hmm. So you you ended up leaving the country about a year after you vowed to fight the administration on these issues. Mm-hmm. What brought you to that moment? What brought you to that decision? So um, parallel with the passage of the propaganda law, they passed another law, which went into effect a week later, which banned adoptions by same-sex couples. What that meant was that it de facto created a mechanism for removing adopted kids from same-sex families. And there was an article in, once again, in the largest paper in the country that pointed out that I had an adopted child. So my son just had to leave the country immediately. So um, the law was passed on June 18th. It was going into effect a week later. June 23rd, he was on a plane to go to the United States. Wow. Because it was very clear that we were going to be targeted under that law. Jeez. We had a going away party. All his friends, all these kids that he'd known his entire life, you know, he was two years old when I adopted him. Everybody came and there was a sense that he might never see any of them again. It was just awful. So once we shipped our son off, it was kind of a no-brainer. So now that you and your family are in New York, how is your life like now compared to what you thought your life was going to be like before you had to leave? Well, I'm, it's really nice to not be in a country that's constantly hostile to you, both as a queer person and as a journalist. I miss my friends a lot. Mm. I chose for myself a life in Russia where... You form much more intimate kind of social relationships where, like, I had this dacha, this house outside the city 
where our group of friends would just congregate pretty much every weekend, and we would just spend the entire weekend together. So, it was, you know, it's a completely—you you can't really imagine Americans doing that on a regular basis, just kind of getting off the grid for two days every week and having a social occasion that lasts 48 hours. Mm. Socializing and, and intimacy are apportioned much more precisely— uh, in America yeah. and in New York especially. Oh, my gosh. In New York, I cancel if the train is five minutes late. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I could spend a weekend with you, Tobin, just like <laughs> off the grid. It seems be, like a lot. Maybe challenging. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that one of the great things about being queer is that we invent our families and invent ways of creating community and, and kinship. I think of that as not some kind of exceptional, weird arrangement, but as actually exactly the kind of thing that queer people do. The first time you left Russia, you were at a similar age or around the same age as when your kids also left Russia. Oh, yes. Yes, I thought that it was really remarkable that one of the most difficult things I've ever been through was emigrating as a teenager, so I decided to subject my Two teenage no. children to, <laughs> to the exact same oh. horrible experience. So I would say, I know you're, what you're going through. And they would say, no, you don't. <laughs> you have no idea. Do you ever hope that you can go back and live in Russia? That is such a totally American question. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think that if you emigrate, you don't look back. Mm. You don't, like, go away to sit things out. You don't put your life on hold to accommodate uh, another political reality. So if I live here, I live here. Masha Gessen's Y2K story was produced by Dan Taberski and Henry Malofsky. Special thanks to Daniel Guillemet for editing this episode. All right, credits. Production fellow. Temi Fugbenle. Editor. Stephanie Joyce. Sound designer. Jeremy Bloom. Executive producer. Paula Schumann. I'm Tobin Lowe. I'm Kathy Tu. And Nancy is a production of WNYC Studios. Studios.